Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Better Movement podcast. I'm very excited to have Stefan Guillenet as my guest today. Stefan is a scientist and author who studies obesity, especially the role of the brain in regulating body fat levels. Stefan received his PhD in neuroscience from the University of Virginia and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington. He's also the author of an excellent book called The Hungry Brain, which I really recommend, which the New York Times called Essential Reading. He's currently a senior fellow at GiveWell, a reviewer at examine.com, and he's the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which is a website which provides free reviews of popular books on nutrition with an eye towards evaluating their scientific credibility. Uh, Stefan's also a good friend who lives here in Seattle. I've been following Stefan's work for at least 10 years, mostly through his excellent blog at wholehealthsource.com. One thing I really like about Stefan's writing is that he provides a lot of evidence about the health and diet of cultures that are non-industrial, such as hunter-gatherer or agrarian cultures. And this is a huge source of insight because these cultures are often free from diseases that are very common in our culture, such as obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and autoimmune disease. So there's clearly something these cultures are doing right, and that probably has something to do with their diet. In this podcast, we talk about what Stefan has learned studying the Catavans in Papua New Guinea, who eat a lot of sweet potatoes, and the Hadza in Africa, who eat surprisingly high levels of honey, and the Inuit, who eat a very high-fat diet. And it's very interesting to look at these cultures with seemingly different diets and think about what they might have in common that they're getting right. Stefan's research proposes that one common factor may be the absence of excessive food reward that we often see in modern diets. Food reward basically means the food tastes really, really good and motivates you to eat a lot of it. Uh, rewarding food gives you a little dopamine hit and excess food reward can dysregulate the systems in your body that control body weight. So Stefan provides a lot of interesting and practical information in here uh, that can help you understand why certain foods are fattening and the associated physiology. Other topics we cover include whether sugar is the devil, whether MSG is really bad for you, how to get your kids to start eating broccoli, and how I got addicted for, to chocolate for like five years and finally kicked the habit. I hope you enjoy it. Stefan, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. My pleasure, Todd. Hey, I wanted to jump right in and start talking about uh, weird people. This is uh, an acronym that from, uh, I think it was coined by Joe Henrik. I'm, I'm often telling you that you you got to read Joe Henrik books. I think you might have read some of his, his work, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Secret of Our Success was a Secrets great Secrets of Our Success. He's got he's got another one called The Weirdest People in the World. And, and WEIRD is an acronym for Western Educated industrial, rich, and uh, democratic. And one of his ideas is that in science and especially uh, psychology, we spent too much time studying weird people, which is just a really small slice of humanity, and kind of ignoring all of the non-people in the world. And most of the, the cultures that have ever existed and that exist today are not weird. 
But when we're studying, you know, human nature and looking at psychology, we're studying like basically college sophomores who major in psychology and ignoring everyone else. And then declaring what we find to be like universal human truths about psychology. That's, that's a huge blind spot. One of the reasons that I like your work is that you don't have that blind spot. You look at ancestral diets, you look at the diets of hunter gatherers, uh, and you have this much broader perspective. Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in that. Uh, and, and whether there's, whether the other people in your scientific community are as interested in this as you, and, and if not, why not? Yeah. So I think that I, for me, I very early on got interested in, uh, evolutionary framework for thinking about health and nutrition. Um, and it's just, I think a productive high level way of looking at how the human body is designed. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that the human body has not been shaped by the conditions that we lived in for the last millions of years, um, or even thousands of years. And so understanding what those conditions are and what the adaptations are that, uh, that came from those is critical to understanding who we are and how we interact with modern environments. That's my thinking. Um, I think a lot of people in the research community, um, don't really think a lot about, uh, evolutionary considerations. I mean, you'll often see, you know, kind of lip service paid to it in the first couple of sentences of the introduction of a paper, they'll, they'll mention, they'll put in some historical or evolutionary context, but it's not really something that pervades thinking or advice on nutrition. And I think, you know, it's not something that I really want to criticize people for because there's a worldview whereby you can say, well, really, I just want empirical evidence. I want direct evidence on the populations that I'm interested in from scientific studies. And, you know, all this evolutionary stuff is kind of fuzzy. So I don't necessarily want to place a lot of weight on that. So I understand that perspective. Um, I just disagree with it. I think yeah. the evolutionary context is important to consider. Well, we do have uh, data on uh, the eating habits and health of lots of populations that <clears throat> aren't weird, hunter-gatherer populations. Uh, and you've looked into a lot of that data. And what's the general quality of it? I mean, we've got information on how the Hadza eat. Those are hunter-gatherer groups. Uh, lots of other, other groups. Uh, what's the quality of that evidence in general? In terms of uh, evidence on what they eat or what their health is or both? Both, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I'm sure it's kind of a mixed bag. But yeah, is, yeah. Is it, it in really general is. reliable? So, hunter gatherers per se, which are people who are living in a way that's broadly consistent with how our ancestors would have lived for the last, like, let's say 2.6 million years or so, um, they're hard to study. You know, they're these small groups. There really aren't very many of them left. There are barely any of them left at this point. Um, and they kind of walk all over the place all day and kind of eat things here and there. Uh, they're not necessarily eating all, sitting at the dinner table and eating all their food in discrete meals. 
Um, and their diet varies quite a bit throughout the year, depending on what's available. And so it's really hard to study hunter gatherer diets and, you know, you're not sure exactly what they're eating. Yeah. I mean, you, you can be, but it just takes a huge amount of work. Like you literally have to follow them around all day, you know, and do that for a number of people over extended periods of time to get really good data on what they're eating. And so that is something that's kind of been a blind spot. So a lot of these studies of hunter-gatherer diets are really focusing on what comes back to the camp because that's easy to study. You have all the people gathering in one place. Um, you don't have to follow individuals who are dispersing all day. Um, and so, yeah, these things are really hard to study. So there's uncertainty and that uncertainty varies by study design. So, you know, some studies have been more comprehensive than others. Um, and you have like these big data sets that collect huge amounts of information on uh, hunter-gatherer diets over hundreds of different societies or over a hundred different societies, but it's mostly really low quality data. And then you have a few studies where you have anthropologists who have really embedded with hunter-gatherer cultures for long periods of time and done really detailed studies. Um, and so you have higher quality data, but there's not a lot of those types of studies. So yeah. that's kind of the landscape of, of what's out there um, in terms of the quality of data on diet and um, on, on diet in, in hunter-gatherers. We have... Um, more and higher quality data, I would say, on the diets of agriculturalists, of uh, subsistence agriculturalists. So people who are uh, not hunter-gatherers, so they're not exclusively living on wild foods. They're primarily relying on uh, things that they're growing uh, in a farming context. So very traditional diets, unprocessed foods. Yeah, they're growing the food and they're eating what they grow. So and would, I, I assume uh, uh, in looking into the health of these people, that data would be pretty regular. You can easily see that, hey, none of these people are obese. And there's lots of convincing evidence that uh, uh, people outside of industrialized areas don't have what are called diseases of civilization, such as obesity and all other kinds of metabolic disease. We can be pretty confident of that, right? Yeah. So, the, and here again, the data varies based on what, whether we're talking about hunter gatherers or agriculturalists. So it's easier to study agriculturalists. There are more of them and, um, there, there, there are more of them. It's easier to study their diet and there have been larger and more detailed studies of their health than there have of hunter gatherers. So for hunter gatherers, I mean, yeah, there's like, I, I, I'm not aware. I don't think I've ever seen a single hunter gatherer with obesity in any book or study that I've read. So I think it's pretty clear that obesity is not something that happens very often at all in hunter gatherers. That's something that's just visible by the eye. But when you're talking about something like cardiovascular disease, it's harder to study. So you can look at risk factors. You can say hunter gatherers tend to have very low levels of bad cholesterol, like LDL cholesterol. So you would expect them to have better cardiovascular health. They have high levels of physical fitness. They don't have obesity. So the, all the risk, they don't have hypertension. That's right. So like all the risk factors are really low, um, but there's not really any autopsy studies. 
So we don't actually know what their heart and their coronary arteries look like. Um, I would expect that they would have excellent cardiovascular health in terms of uh, the type of atherosclerotic degenerative heart disease that happens most commonly in our societies. I would expect them not to have very much of that type of cardiac uh, issues. However, you know, every population that's been studied has some, so they probably have some just like everybody else. It's probably just less, and they're probably not having heart attacks. Um, and then if you look at agricultural populations, now you have actually like huge autopsy studies that have been done where they actually in thousands of people are dissecting the heart and the coronary arteries and actually directly looking to see if these people are having heart attacks and what degree of damage they're accumulating. And what we see is that in subsistence farmers, they basically don't have heart attacks and they have less atherosclerosis. So they're developing less of the type of damage to their hearts that we typically get. And they're not having heart attacks. I mean, basically like zero in some of these huge uh, studies. And just to, just to mention a a really common um, objection, just to anticipate a really common objection, they actually look at it in an age specific manner. And you can see that compared to middle age and older people in the U S for example, there's still like zero heart attacks in middle age and older people in these communities. So it's not objection being these people all died when they were 30. Of course, they're not having heart attacks in the response. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If we look at the ones that are older, they're still not having heart attacks. So it's not just the fact that they're dying young, although they do have higher mortality rates. Um, it's actually that their hearts are dramatically protected relative to ours. Yeah. I mean, to me, this is, this is a fascinating finding and it should inspire tremendous scientific curiosity about solving this puzzle. Why is this? And I don't see it as much as I would like. I've seen it in your work. I've seen it in, in the works of uh, lots of kind of unprofessional bloggers. You're not one of those who, who very often kind of descend into a bunch of romantic, paleo fantasies about becoming bulletproof if you just eat like a caveman or, or a hunter-gatherer <laughs> or something like that. Perhaps the scientific community constant wants to distance itself from those obviously trendy, fallacious types of takes. But on the other hand, there's something really, really, really uh, worth exploring here, and there's, and there's data to be collected. Uh, you, in your book and in your blog, you write about, uh, the study of the, I think it's called the Catavan population in Papua New Guinea. Who's the guy, Stefan, uh, Lindeberg. Yeah. Investigated that. Tell us a little bit about, uh, what he found when he investigated the health of these people and what they were eating. Yeah. So (laughs) Stefan Lindeberg, um, in, I think in the early 1990s went to live, um, to visit this Melanesian population. Um, it's an island, it's not Papua New Guinea, but it's an island that's close to Papua New Guinea, um, relatively close. And, um, it was a population that field physicians had noted seemed to have very low rates of obesity and chronic disease. And so Stefan Lindeberg, he was kind of a paleo guy. He had been eating a paleo diet at that point for a while and felt that his own health had been benefited. And 
he was really into this evolutionary concept of nutrition and disease. And so he undertook a study to go um, study this population, their diet and, and their health to see if he could, you know, figure out what was going on. And this was not a hunter gatherer population. It was an agricultural population, but it was an agricultural population. It, it was um, what's called a, a horticultural population, which means they didn't have a grain-based diet. They had a diet based on uh, tubers and corms like um, African yam and sweet potato and taro and breadfruit and fruit and fish. Um, so it's kind of a starch heavy omnivorous diet. Is what I found really about interesting it. about these guys is they're eating a lot of carbs. Yes, that's right. So their diet was, if I recall, it was about 70% carbohydrate and uh, 20% fat and 10% protein. I think that's roughly the proportions. Yeah. So very carb heavy diet. And how does that compare? How does that compare to the U.S. diet in terms of that macronutrient breakdown? What what do we eat here? Yeah, U.S. diet is uh, somewhere in the realm of twelve or thirteen percent protein, and then similar proportions of fat and carbohydrate for the the remainder. Okay. Yeah. Um, but but you hear people in the United States speculate that it's high carb intake that accounts for us being so obese. But you take one look at the Catawbans. And you wouldn't find that. What what kind of health do these guys have? Yeah. So and and I want to I want to stipulate before getting into that that I mean this type of diet the you know high carbohydrate low fat diet is very common among uh, non industrial populations. So that's the most typical macronutrient distribution that you're going to see among non industrial populations. And is that true for the hunter gatherers and the agricultural? populations? No, it's true for the agricultural populations predominantly. Okay. So, th so the hunter gatherers are eating more fat. I think it really depends, but they certainly can eat more fat. Yeah. yeah. Like the Inuit, for example, ate a lot of fat and how very little. Do, how much, how much fat do the Inuit eat? Oh man. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, I mean, they ate very little carbohydrate because there were barely any plants in the what Arctic circle. Um, and they also ate a lot of protein though. So I think maybe during certain seasons, they probably ate 70% fat, maybe even more in terms of percent of calories. And these guys are healthy in terms of not having metabolic disorders, not having obesity, not having heart disease, as far as we know. If you look at historical studies, they did not have obesity. Um, they, their cardiovascular risk factors were in uh, a healthy range and, um, they didn't have diabetes. However, there are actually some very small autopsy studies that have been done suggesting that they actually did have a fair amount of atherosclerosis or damage to the coronary arteries as a result of cardiovascular disease. So I think there's a bit of a question mark there in terms of how much, in terms of actual cardiac events, I'm not sure they were necessarily having heart attacks, um, but it did seem like they were accumulating cardiovascular damage in autopsy. This is autopsies that were done on mummies, like frozen in the ice Inuit from before contact. So this is like hardcore, traditional diet and lifestyle, no Western contact 
Uh, they weren't eating white flour or sugar, anything like that. And their coronary arteries were, were already pretty messed up. So hmm. I think, I think there is a question mark there. Um, although the sample sizes we're talking about are tiny, like I think the total number of individuals we're talking about is like three to something in the three to six range. Yeah. So, so, but with the Catawbans though, t- tell me about their health as I recall. Yeah. So there were no Catawbans with obesity on the entire Island. Um, I don't remember exactly how many people he examined something like 1500, um, and there were a few individuals who would be classified as overweight. And generally they were women who were of peak reproductive age. Um, and unlike in Western populations, like in the U S where weight increases with age, what you would see is it peaks around peak reproductive age, and then it goes down and down after that. And so there wasn't this kind of gradual accumulation of fat with, with age. Um, and then he didn't find a single person with diabetes, which is typical for non-industrial populations. Um, and he um, found that all of their, well, actually their um, metabolic risk factors were all in a, a pretty good range, but some of their cardiovascular risk factors were a bit elevated. So I think if I recall, their LDL cholesterol was actually like similar to Western levels. However, when he, um, measured cardiac, that's a pretty, that's a pretty weak risk factor. LDL, not really. No, I mean, it's, it depends on the time of life that you measure it, but certainly cumulative LDL exposure over the lifespan is, is a major contributor to cardiovascular risk. Um, but anyway, he, he, um, used electrocardiograms, which measures how the heart is beating to see. Um, what proportion of people had actually experienced a heart attack in this population. And it's, it's not a super sensitive method. Like you're not going to catch everyone who's had a a non-fatal heart attack, but you can catch certain types of cardiac damage and there are um, characteristic signatures that you see for um, non-fatal heart attacks in Western populations. And basically he didn't see any of that. So these people, it appears were not having uh, we're not having Western style heart attacks at the same rate as us. And perhaps not at all. So you got populations that are eating. I mean, we have a lot of kind of, uh, explanations running around, uh, the blogosphere and the internet, and even the scientific community about, you know, what causes obesity. And some of them are high carb intake and some of them are the opposite high, high fat intake, but you can find examples of people, you know, as we're talking about that eat a lot of eat a lot of carbs, eat a lot of fat, but seem to be escaping from, from getting, uh, obese. And then another popular explanation is it's all about the sugar too much sugar intake, but we know about hunter gatherer groups that actually eat a lot of honey Tell yeah. us about that. Absolutely. So I think, you know, to preface this, I think if your hypothesis, we'll, we'll start with sugar. Um, if your hypothesis is sugar is a contributor to obesity that, you know, might tend to push your weight upward and is interacting with a bunch of different factors. I don't think these types of observations rule that out. Um, but if your hypothesis is sugar is the cause of obesity, it's the dominant factor. Then if you find a hunter gatherer population that's eating tons of sugar and is not getting fat, then your hypothesis is toast. 
And that is a hypothesis that a lot of people are promoting uh, in, you know, popular health and nutrition circles. So if you look at um, Robert Lustig, for example, he, you know, became this like medical celebrity through his video, um, Sugar, the Bitter Truth. That was, I don't know how many years ago, eight, 10 years ago. Um, and that really like launched us into this new era of focusing on sugar as, um, you know, this disproportionately impactful thing. But yeah, if you believe that, then you can't really explain why there are hunter gatherer cultures, for example, the Hadza really well-studied culture that is, they're still full on hunter gatherers today, which I don't even know if there's another culture left that, that really is hundred percent hunter gatherer. They've been studied over long periods of time, detailed diet studies, and they get like 50, 15% of their year round calorie intake from honey. And that's not even including all the fruit they eat, which has additional sugar. And I mean, what is honey? It's like kind of like concentrated sugar water, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot else in it. Sugar water with some vitamins thrown in, right? I mean, if you, <laughs> yeah, traces of vitamins. I mean, yeah. it's really not that much um, on a per calorie basis. Like if you were to compare it to like a slice of bread or a piece of fruit or a piece of meat of equal caloric value, it's like trivial. Um, and you know, you could, you could say maybe there are some compounds in honey that are beneficial for health versus white sugar, but like, it's a lot of sugar, Yeah, you know, it is sugar. It's a lot of sugar. It's not getting slowed down by fiber, you know, in terms of digestion speed, like it's got tons of fructose. Um, it's sugar. So yeah. And the Hadza ha eat about 15% of their calories year round just from honey. So that's about the same amount of sugar that Americans eat. I think if you throw in the, all the fruit they eat, they might actually eat more total sugar than we do. And yet there are no traditionally living Hadza that have obesity. Is it a good guess that a lot of uh, hunter gatherer populations through the world uh, and perhaps our ancestors uh, relied on quite a bit of honey to, to get their uh, think, calories? Yeah, it really depends. I think it's really location specific, but I think um, I was surprised to learn how common it is that hunter gatherers do rely extensively on honey. They can get honey. I mean, that they've got the that they they've got the ways to do it. They they know where to find it. There's lots of honey in the world. You can go get it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's bees in many different parts of the world that make honey, and you know, some of them some of species are easier to get honey from than others. But um, yeah, I mean, honey is obviously a very attractive food to humans, and so we found clever ways to get it. You know, the Hadza, they have a whole technique involving uh, honey guide birds that take them to the honey and then they pound wooden stakes into a tree and climb up it. And then they have a little, you know, burning ember that they use to make smoke to calm the bees Welcome down. Out again, stone. Yeah. And so it's like this whole, I mean, you know, hunter gatherer populations, like they're really into honey and they've figured out ways to get it. I um, love that. Yeah. So Another interesting data point on sugar that you've pointed out in, in, in making the case that it's not all about sugar consumption is that in the U.S. and the U.K., sugar consumption's actually been going uh, down over the years, even as the obesity epidemic has been skyrocketing. But tell us about the stats there. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so in the United States, our sugar intake, if, if you look over a very long historical period from like the mid 1800s, of course, our sugar intake is much higher now than it was. Um, but if, you know, if we're just looking over the time period since the so-called obesity epidemic, which started in the like mid seventies to 1980, what you see is that, um, it does correspond in the beginning to an increase in sugar intake. So you see sugar intake going up, um, obesity is going up. And I think sugar intake increased by something like 20%. And then what you see is about 1999, our sugar intake starts to decline. And this is really well documented. It's, it's like, I've had arguments online with people who just do not want to believe this. And they're like bending over backwards. And I'm citing like four independent lines of evidence that our sugar intake has gone down. And there's no lines of evidence suggesting that it hasn't gone down. And like, people are so attached to the sugar idea that they cannot accept. It's really taken for granted. I mean, I can tell you that, that all of all the people I know that have kids, the idea that sugar is the devil is very much taken for granted. And there, there's, they don't expect that there would be any debate about that in any form. <laughs> yeah, it's really turned into conventional wisdom. And yeah. so um, anyway, sugar intake since 1999 has been going down. Now, at this point, it's depending on what um, source of evidence you look at, it's somewhere between 15 and 23% lower than it was. And that's primarily accounted for because we're drinking less soda. So Americans are drinking less soda. I think I think we just kind of got the message that soda's not good for you. Um, and we're drinking, you know, more water, more non-caloric beverages. Um, but obesity keeps going up. So if you look at the curve, like obesity was going up when sugar went up and then it kept going up when sugar went down. So at this point, we're not that much higher than where we were in 1980 when obesity started going up and yet obesity and diabetes are just going up, up, up. And so I think, you know, and again, people like have tried to propose like complex, implausible hypotheses for how sugar could still be causing obesity, even though we're eating less and less of it. And I just don't buy it. I think sugar is just not the complete explanation for obesity. And okay, let's, let's talk about a more complete explanation of obesity, because this gets into uh, one of your research interests. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to explain why we've got obesity epidemic in this country and why an individual would get obese based on diet. You know, you've got theories about it's too much carbs, it's too much fat, it's too much sugar. Uh, and those kind of, again, really get undermined by the evidence that you're talking about, but you've got a better explanation uh, for it, which kind of explains the role of, of sugar and these other things. Uh, and that's excess food reward. Tell us what what, what that means. It, 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 to really short summary, there's a common sense element to this, which is that you're going to eat more of tasty food, but there's a lot more complex science behind it. Let, let's get into it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and let me just say before we get into it, that I don't want to present this as, you know, food reward explains all of obesity. I think this is a major influence on eating behavior and body fatness, but I don't think that one, you know, I don't want to present this as the comprehensive explanation for, for obesity. Um, but I will say, I will frame it in this way is I think that I'm kind of 
the main person who has been driving this idea into the popular nutrition sphere. In so your book, The Hungry Brain, that this yeah. is central. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, an idea that is associated with me. Um, although, you know, also to be complete, it's, uh, there are a lot of researchers working on this and I'm certainly far from unique in the research community for focusing on this idea. Um, so yeah, so on a very basic level, um, I think most people can understand the importance of food reward. I mean, I think everyone understands that we tend to like tasty foods and that tasty foods have certain kinds of properties. Like they tend to have more sugar and more fat and salt. Um, and so, um, another basic observation that I want to start with is that of all of the hundreds of diets that have been tested in, um, experimental obesity studies, the most effective way to fatten a rat or mouse is to feed it a variety of tasty human foods. So, and that's something they've been that, trying to do this for a long time, right? I mean, they're trying to, they're trying to, to break the rats fat, uh, body fat regulation system with different types of diets. And they found what works best is just feed them junk food. Yeah, exactly. So you can feed them high fat diets. You can feed them high sugar diets. You can feed them uh, refined carbs. You can feed them, you know, a variety of different diets that will cause fat gain, but nothing even comes close to feeding them a variety of tasty human foods. And it doesn't work as well when you only put one tasty human food in. It only works to the full extent when you have kind of a buffet in the cage. And um, and again, there is no homogenized pellet. There's no comp there's no known composition of a homogenized pellet that you can put in a rodent's cage that will cause it to overeat and gain fat as quickly and to the same extent as tasty human food. So there's something very special about tasty human food that cannot be fully explained by its sheer nutrient composition. You can't get the same thing by blending it all up and putting it in a pellet. So, um, so that's the, the observation that I want to start with. And it's not just in, in rodents. You see this in a variety of different species and you see it in humans. If you put humans around a wide variety of tasty foods that are easily accessible, we will tend to overeat and gain fat. And this has been shown in uh, highly controlled feeding studies, metabolic ward studies for, for people who are into the, the scientific lingo. Um, and basically, you know, the way this works is that food reward, the way I think about it is it's the seductiveness of food. It's a property of specific foods that makes us want to eat them or not. Um, and like other intuitive motivations that we have, it's driven by dopamine release and some foods are better at spiking dopamine than others. And the food properties that spike dopamine are those that supported the survival and reproduction of our distant ancestors. So things like higher carbohydrate concentration, higher fat concentration, um, protein, umami, which are uh, glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor that is naturally found in cooked meat, salt. Why the, why the salt? I'm curious about the salt. Why would our ancestors have been so attracted to salt? Is that because it's an electrolyte or is it because it signals that maybe you're eating meat, which is a valuable nutrient? Yeah, I think, I think this is a great question because 
sodium chloride is the only micronutrient that we can taste. There's no other micronutrient that we can taste at the levels naturally found in food. So we have a special attraction to, to salt among all of the other micronutrients. And I think that suggests that it played a particularly important role evolutionarily among the micronutrients. So you can imagine, you know, think about a hunter gatherer, the foods that are available to him or her, they are all whole unrefined foods. So if you can get enough calories of an omnivorous whole food diet, you're getting, you're going to get enough thiamine. You're going to get enough vitamin B12. You're going to get enough magnesium. You don't need to have motivations to specifically seek out those nutrients. However, you might not get enough salt, especially if, you know, as a human, we sweat through almost our entire skin surface. And so we're losing extra sodium that way. Um, so yeah, being able to, and it's something that's not easily available in the environment. You see salt seeking in other species too, you know, right, elephants, things, yeah, horses. Yeah. Like animals have salt, a salt specific appetite. We don't have a magnesium specific appetite or, a, you know, thiamine specific appetite or whatever. So I think this is something that historically was very scarce. Um, and was not automatically delivered by an omnivorous whole food diet. And so we had this motivation to, to seek it specifically. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the one that stands out among the nutrients that spike our dopamine. Um, all the other ones are actually calorie containing substances, which emphasizes the critical role that energy played in our evolution and, and also in our, in our current motivation and how our brain is, is hardwired to be motivated. So, um, yeah, so we have these food properties, you know, carbohydrate, fat, protein, um, glutamate and salt glutamate is an amino acid, by the way. So that you could say it's kind of related to protein. Um, and our brains are hardwired to release dopamine when we consume those substances. And especially when you get foods that are co combinations of those things in just the right proportions, you're going to get a lot of dopamine release. And um, that causes you to be more motivated to seek those foods. So um, if you, you know, eat a slice of pizza, uh, dopamine release will occur in your brain at a higher level than if you had you know, uh, skinless chicken breast and steamed broccoli. And, um, that will cause you to be more motivated to eat pizza in the future. And so when you encounter sensory cues, like the smell of pizza or the sight of pizza, um, or you're in a place or a situation where you habitually eat pizza, you're going to experience a motivation to eat pizza. Um, you're going to experience a craving basically. And, um, yeah. So food reward, you know, unsurprisingly, this is kind of common sense in my view, that's been backed up by science is an important influence on food selection and food intake. So selection, um, <clears throat> you know, if you look at survey data on the foods that are most commonly associated with cravings and addiction, like behavior, what you see is that the foods that are at that are cited most commonly in those surveys are ones that are the most concentrated in uh, dopamine 
stimulating properties. So like chocolate is usually number one in those surveys, particularly. I developed a, I developed a full-on chocolate addiction. Like <laughs> three or four years ago, I was, it, it was interesting. It was the same time that I really drastically lowered the overall food reward uh, value of my diet. I kind of went to kind of a paleo style diet. Okay. Very strict about what I ate. And chocolate is like officially paleo. So I was like, oh, I can eat chocolate. And then, so I just started feasting on chocolate uh, to the point where I did like literally have, it wasn't just that I really wanted chocolate. It's like, if I woke up in the morning and there wasn't a chocolate bar in the house, like I was going to go get one. <laughs> wow. So is this uh, sugar-free or low sugar? This is like really low sugar. This was like hardcore, you know, uh, high fat, you know, high uh, cocoa, you know, like the, like the 88% kind of dark, really dark chocolate. Got it. And okay. uh, so, yeah, it was, and, and, you know, I finally broke it for the first time. I broke my chocolate addiction during COVID. I was like some kind of like sacrifice to the COVID gods where it's like, I stopped going to the supermarket where I was getting the chocolate. I was like, okay, I'm just not having that anymore. <laughs> so, All right. Congratulations. So I, kinda, so I I broke it, but it took, it took like, you know, weeks before I would like wake up and not it would maybe like months before, before I had the feeling that something was missing. And and that's because it's got like a drug-like property, right? Yeah. I mean, it has multiple properties that increase dopamine release. Um, so it's very high. It's very concentrated in fat. It also has um, typical chocolate has a lot of sugar. Chocolate you're eating sounds like it has some sugar. Um, so it's, it's, not, hitting- it's not extremely rewarding. By the taste. Oh, I remember really? You telling, I remember you saying something about uh, coffee and beer. The first time you have coffee and beer, yeah. it doesn't taste that good. It's not until your brain learns to associate the taste with the reward that comes from the drug-like properties of those things. And then it starts to taste a little bit better later. Yeah, that's right. So there are certain food properties that were hardwired to like things like sugar and fat, um, but they're but you can learn to like almost any food property by virtue of repeated association with the ones that were hardwired to, to like. Um, and so if you, yeah, like beer, you know, alcohol stimulates dopamine release and beer also contains carbohydrate that stimulates dopamine release. So, you know, you, you have your first taste and it's bitter and you're like, ah, this is horrible. Um, but once the dopamine release happens, then the next time you have that beer, you're going to say, oh, you know what? This tastes better than I remember. I, I actually kind of want to drink this and I like it. And, you know, that maybe that would take five times or one time or 10 times, depending on the person. But um, eventually most people get to the point where they're like, actually, I like this bitter flavor of this, of this beverage. Um, and same for chocolate, same for coffee. You know, chocolate, you might start out on milk chocolate where you're, you know, there's not much bitterness. There's a lot of sweetness. Um, but then over time, a lot of people will graduate, uh, gravitate over time toward, uh, dark chocolate toward that more bitter flavor. The hardcore. It's like the crack. Yeah. And this can turn into a strategy for getting your kids to eat vegetables, right? You put, you put broccoli, you put uh, butter on the broccoli for a while. And pretty soon they're going to actually like broccoli because. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Um, exactly. So it's that, uh, 
it's that re- reward learning, that reinforcement that happens. Um, and w- what it really is, it's uh, Pavlovian conditioning. So you're learning to associate um, the fat and the sugar, et cetera, with the flavor and appearance and taste of the of the broccoli. And over time, your brain will actually, you know, imprint those good feelings onto the broccoli or that motivational state will imprint onto the broccoli. Um, so yeah, let me just finish with chocolate. Um, so for chocolate, you have the concentrated fat, the concentrated sugar, but you also have a habit forming drug called theobromine. And, um, I think those things together are why chocolate is so often uh, trigger for cravings in people. Um, so theobromine, it doesn't directly stimulate insulin release, but it uh, has effects on that same pathway a little bit downstream of dopamine release. So it potentiates uh, what's happening with the, the fat and the sugar. Okay. So you, you mentioned the brain several times. That's another reason that I, that I, that I like your work is that uh, you're focusing on the brain uh, as the, that's kind of the place where uh, weight dysregulation happens. And the problem with excess food reward is not so much that it just causes you to eat a lot at a particular uh, meal, but that it dysregulates the brain's whole ability to regulate body fat. So tell us a little bit about the lipostat, the apostat, and how the brain is always going to work in regulating how much energy we're storing versus how much energy we're taking in. Yeah. So I, I will say that um, the least the 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 least uncertain part of this story is the part where food reward just gets us to eat certain kinds of fattening food and causes us to just eat too much within a meal. That's kind of the least uncertain part. The more uncertain part that I'll get into now is that it actually affects body fat regulation. So the circuits that are regulating body fat in the brain. Yeah. So Um, you eat too much during a meal. Why don't you just eat less at the next meal? That's kind of normally the way we regulate our appetite, right? Your argument is that becomes harder to do if you're eating excess reward, right? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, But I also think that we, you know, the protections that we have, the, the inborn protections that we have against weight gain aren't ironclad. So if you keep pushing on that and keep pushing by, you know, overeating and overeating and overeating, eventually you're probably going to push that regulation out of balance. That's, that's my current thinking on this. Um, however, yeah, there's, there's basically two paths to changing how your body fat is regulated. Either it could be caused by overeating, or it could be caused by changes in the regulatory system that are primary. And that leads to and permits overeating to occur. And I think um, both of those could be happening. But basically, um, yeah, so we have this system to take a step back. We have this system that I call the lipostat, which regulates uh, body fat levels in the body. And this is situated in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus that uh, does many different forms of so-called homeostatic regulation. So essentially these are brain systems that try to keep certain variables in the body within a certain optimal range. So you have a literal thermostat in your brain that tries to keep your temperature within a certain range. And it's actually extremely effective. You know, usually if you measure your temperature, it's going to be within like a degree uh, Fahrenheit, which is pretty incredible considering the wide 
variation of external temperatures that your body might experience. And, um, and it does that using both physiology, things like vasodilation in your skin and behavior by, you know, you want to put on a sweater because you feel cold or you want to come back inside or you want to drink a hot beverage. Um, so you have these complex regulatory systems that are regulating a ton of things in, in the body, temperature, blood pressure, ion levels in your blood. And one of the things that gets regulated by the hypothalamus is body fat. So, um, the way it works is that your fat tissue produces this hormone leptin in proportion to its volume and that circulates in the blood and the brain uses it to measure your body fat level the same way that, um, your brain might measure your body temperature. It's using this hormone to measure your body fat level. And the brain kind of has a level it's looking for a level level of leptin that it wants to see. And if your leptin drops below that level, your brain kicks in compensatory mechanisms to make you hungrier, uh, to make your food intake go up and to some extent to make your energy expenditure go down. So your metabolic rate goes down a little bit. Um, and basically what we see in obesity is that the, the regulated weight. So your so-called set point or the place where your body wants to be in terms of your body fatness goes up. So in people with obesity, they're not exceeding their body fat set point. They are at their body fat set point. So that's why that's one of the key reasons why it's so hard to lose weight is that their body will kick in a starvation response when they start to lose fat, just the same way that a lean person's body will kick in a starvation response. Yeah. So the question is, if they've got a bunch of extra energy on their body, why isn't the brain figuring out that there's lots of energy there and we don't need to keep eating? Why is the brain saying, hey, we need to go eat a lot of, why isn't it reading the signal from the leptin? So the, lep the, the fat cells should be producing leptin. That leptin should be going up to the brain. The brain should be saying, hey, we got leptin. We got lots of fat. We don't need to eat that much and we should go around and walk. What, what's, what's going wrong here? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty perverse the way the system is set up. You know, it makes it difficult for people who have excess fat to lose that fat. Um, and essentially there, there's two parts to the answer. One is that the leptin system per se does not really seem to be designed so much to protect against fat gain. It's mostly to protect against fat loss. Um, because that would have been a much bigger problem for our ancestors to starve exactly. as opposed to getting too heavy and not being able to run around fast. Exactly. That said, we do have a biological mechanism to protect against fat gain. And you see it kicked in, you see it kicking in, in overfeeding studies. Um, so there is a mechanism that resists fat gain. It just doesn't seem to be as robust as the one that protects against fat loss. And what you see is that the amount as a person gains weight, the amount of leptin that their brain requires to feel satisfied goes up. And so, um, we call that leptin resistance. So basically so there's a signal there, but there's a, that you're just basically not hearing the signal. Yeah. It's, um, and it's analogous to insulin resistance. Like when someone has insulin resistance, what that means is that their tissues can't quote unquote, hear the insulin as well as they used to. So it takes more insulin to get the same effect. And that's the same thing with leptin. It takes, you know, someone with obesity, their brain requires much more leptin to feel like, uh, it's 
where it wants to be than a lean person's brain requires. So we call that leptin resistance. And, you know, we don't really know exactly how that works yet. So it's not just that, you know, you don't have as many receptors or that the receptors aren't working as well. I think it's more like there's something in the processing of the signal at some, at some juncture in the brain, uh, the signal gets processed differently and it just doesn't have the same physiological impact. And we don't really understand exactly how that is happening yet. Is there a hypothesis that says excess food reward breaks the hypothalamus and its ability to regulate fat or just kind of, you know, dysregulates the brain or causes the leptin resistance? Yeah. I mean, I think there is evidence that it does change the way the signal is processed. Um, so what you see in animals is that if you put them on a highly rewarding diet, their, their so-called set point will increase. So um, the way you study this is you take animals, you let them eat however they, however much they want and get up to however, you know, whatever body weight they're going to get up to at steady state. And then you start perturbing it. So you, um, cut back on their calorie intake. You leave them on the same food, but you cut back their calorie intake by maybe a quarter. You let them lose weight and then you end the restriction and you see if they go back up to the level where they were before. And then you can also put them on a different diet and see if they reach a different steady state. And basically what you see is that animals on highly rewarding diets defend a higher set point. So if you starve them for a little while, they'll bounce right back up to that initial set point. As long as they're eating the same diet, you put them on a different diet, a low reward diet, and then they'll go down to a different weight curve. So they will defend a lower weight. So yeah, it does, um, in animals, it seems to affect the set point per se and where, how exactly that processing happens in the brain. I'm not sure, but I mean, there's a lot of evidence that there's crosstalk between the systems that regulate appetite and, and food reward. So, you know, for example, when we're hungry, food tastes better, right. Um, than when we're not hungry. So that's an example of it going in the other direction. It goes from hunger to food reward. Um, and then I don't know how many people have had this experience, but I've had this many times where I'm not hungry at all. I've eaten a healthy meal. Like, let's say I brought my lunch to work and it's a, you know, healthy, lower calorie density meal. And I'm feeling good about myself. And then I walk into a meeting room and there's like pizza. There's, there's like boxes of free pizza. And suddenly I'm hungry again. Like I'm, I physically feel hungry. Not only do I want to eat it, but I actually physically feel hungry. You were completely satisfied when you're yeah. eating that boring, bland, you know, baked potato. And, and this is something that all chefs and food engineers know, whether based on study of the science or just intuitively, is that when you feel full after eating your steak and potatoes, there's always more room for dessert. Yeah. And, you know, if I walk into that room with pizza, I might not feel like my hunger is satisfied until I've eaten three slices. And that, yeah. that was from a baseline of not being hungry. So, um, that's kind of the, the other direction of crosstalk and there's more scientific evidence for that as well. Um, but as I said, it's not as strong as the evidence that food reward just makes us eat more and makes us eat, you know, more calorie dense types of foods. Um, and yeah, so I think there's a 
pretty good argument, a pretty good not ironclad argument to be made that eating a high reward diet actually increases the set point. And basically the way I think about this is, you know, we have these brains that are very complex that evolved over millions and millions of years to integrate tons and tons of information and produce physiological and behavioral outputs to maximize the reproductive success of the organism. And so, you know, food eating behavior might seem pretty simple to the eater, but there's a ton of stuff that goes into it under the hood, a ton of information that gets integrated into the brain circuits that are regulating eating behavior and body fatness. And most of that is happening on a non-conscious level. And um, so I think basically what's happening is when, you know, when a food is very high reward, that means that it's implicitly highly valued by the brain. So it has properties that the brain thinks on some intuitive level are awesome. And when the brain is around food that it thinks is awesome, it's going to pull out the stops to allow you to eat most of it because that is a food that would have increased your re the reproductive success of your ancestors. That's why you're hardwired to like it. That's not true in the world today, but it was true for a long time. That's how your brain is wired. And so, you know, if you're around this food, that's going to increase your reproductive success and your gene copies. Why would you, why, why wouldn't you eat more of it? I mean, that's, that's the option that makes absolutely the most sense. And so I think of it as the brain, just sweeping away barriers uh, that are in the way of consuming this food that it perceives intuitively as extremely beneficial. And the food engineers and good chefs kind of know this intuitively or, or on purpose, and they can kind of hack into your brain. You've got a line in your book. You say, you, you say they're competing for stomach space. I mean, there's a, there, there's a limited amount of stomach space in the world, and people want to sell food, and people want to sell corn chips, and people want to sell food to people, and you can get them to eat more if you can make that food maximally rewarding. And the food scientists that at uh, the major food companies, I mean, they know this stuff. They know how to maximize reward, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if we look at historical, like the historical trajectory of human food, um, it's pretty striking to the degree to which we have optimized for dopamine stimulating nutrients. And I think, you know, food is, is not cocaine, but I think cocaine is actually a really good analogy for, for, uh, what we have done to food. So cocaine goes into the brain and it spikes dopamine release. That's why it's addictive. Um, but the way it's found naturally is in coca leaves, right? And this is something that's been consumed uh, in a constructive context for, you know, probably thousands of years by people in South America. It's like drinking a cup of coffee. You chew coca leaves, gives you some energy, um, makes you alert. But if you then take that and you concentrate it, so you, you extract the dopamine uh, stimulating substance out of that leaf and greatly concentrate it, then suddenly you have cocaine that is much more effective at spiking dopamine and is much more motivating, much more addictive. And then if you take a further step and you freebase it, now you have crack, which spikes dopamine faster and higher than, than cocaine through the nose. And so now you have something that's even more addictive and more motivating. And, you know, you went from something that just had an ingredient that was kind of useful to, and, and slightly reinforcing to something that is like super addictive and life destroying.
And it completely messes people. with your whole motivational system. Your brain decides that what I'm all about is getting that crack cocaine. I don't care about eating. I don't care about sleeping. I don't care about my relationships or money. That's exactly. priority now. It reorganizes your, your priorities uh, according to how much they spike dopamine. So if you have something that is spiking dopamine a ton, that's telling your brain on an intuitive level, this is the absolute best thing you could be doing right now. So you need to be looking for more crack or heroin or whatever it is, um, instead of doing all these other things that are more constructive in your life. So, um, yeah. And so, I mean, this is what we've done with food. Like look at, um, look at glutamate. I think glutamate is a great example. Again, this is the umami flavor. The original source of glutamate was cooked meat. We've been eating that for probably hundreds of thousands of years, but eventually we figured out ways to make bone broth, which is more concentrated technology progressed. And we figured out ways to make fish sauce and soy sauce, which is even more concentrated glutamate. And that culminated in the isolation of pure monosodium glutamate in, I think, 1908 or 1904 in, in Japan. And so that was the culmination of this process of concentrating the so-called active ingredient in cooked meat that spikes our dopamine, or at least one of the active ingredients. A lot of people think MSG is, is bad for you for some reason, other than it dysregulates your satiety mechanisms. Is that correct? Is, is there something bad about MSG besides that it just makes you really want to eat whatever you're eating? Uh, I haven't really been convinced by the evidence. I think, you know, people say that it's cytotoxic in the brain, but yeah, if you inject it into your brain, but the levels of MSG that get into your blood or the levels of glutamate that get into your bloodstream and get past the blood brain barrier are like nil. So the idea that, yeah, no, it doesn't make any sense to me. And you know, the same people who argue that will be telling you, you should drink bone broth, which has a bunch of glutamate in it. So, course, yeah. um, I, th there's chemically no difference between monosodium glutamate and what's found in soy sauce, fish sauce, bone broth, etc. Um, similar to the non-difference between, uh, processed sugar and the sugar that's in fruit. I mean, it's just the sugar and fruit comes along with other good stuff. Exactly. And I think that's the analogy here. Oh yeah. And, and by the way, let me also add that if you look at double blind studies where they've given people pills full of glutamate versus nothing, and they've seen, you know, they measure whether people experience symptoms, there's nothing like if you do, if you do it blinded, glutamate doesn't really seem to do anything. It doesn't give people a headache or whatever the uh, you know, syndrome that people report after certain types of food. Um, so yeah, the evidence indicting glutamate, I think is pretty weak in terms of like, you know, health effects other than getting us to eat too much. Um, anyway, so, uh, what was your, what was your question? You, you well, asked let, me let's shift else. to talking a little bit about, um, you know, what we can do with this information. Another reason I love this food reward idea is that some of the practical implications are, are pretty uh, pretty obvious. You should, if you want to lose weight, you should avoid highly rewarding food. And the best source of highly rewarding food is anything that's processed. Now, a lot of people say that think that processed food is bad because it's got magical toxic chemicals in them. But according to what I understand from your work, 
one of the reasons we should be avoiding it is that's food that's highly engineered to, to be excess reward and disrupt your normal satiety mechanisms. So it's not that Fritos have some bad chemicals in them that will make you sick is that that stuff's really highly rewarding and you won't be able to control yourself when you're eating it. That's like the liquid that's like getting on crack. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a, an analogy, but yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this food, you know, it's not as addictive as crack cocaine, but it is on that motivational spectrum where it's more motivating than the types of foods that our ancestors would have eaten. So even if you're not addicted per se, you know, addiction is just the extreme end of the motivation spectrum. That's just where we decide to draw an arbitrary line and say above this line, we call it addiction, but there's, you know, motivation is a continuum. And the more motivated you are, the more likely you're going to engage in a behavior. And so, and the more dopamine something stimulates, the more motivated you're going to be. So um, yeah. And the foods in the grocery store, because people are competing for stomach share, they have been heavily selected for the ones that motivate you to purchase them. And the main way that you can motivate someone to purchase a food, or at least one of the main ways is to have that food stimulate dopamine in their brain. And so these foods have been optimized, whether deliberately or not, to stimulate dopamine in your brain. If the food doesn't do that, it's not going to be on the shelves for very long. So um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the situation with processed foods. You can make foods that stimulate dopamine a lot in the home too. Like it takes some skill though. It it takes some skill and it takes time and effort, you know. So, like I think somebody could bake chocolate chip cookies that would release as le at least as much dopamine as like you know, whatever processed ones I could buy in the grocery store. Doesn't take a lot of skill, but I'm talking about, you know, if you cook your own meal at home, you cook like the kind of meal you eat in a restaurant. Let's say you're trying to duplicate a meal you eat in the restaurant. It's kind of like chicken breast with a certain gravy and, and then, uh, you know, broccoli and mashed potatoes or something. I'm not going to, when I cook it, it's not going to be anywhere near as rewarding as that same yeah. basic meal when I go to a restaurant. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you were to go in the kitchen, of those restaurants, you would be like shocked by how much <laughs> butter they put into everything. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So to get back to your question, you're asking about what we can do about it. Um, yeah. So there are a couple of different angles you can take on this and, you know, the way reward works is again, it causes your brain to link dopamine stimulating nutrients with the context in which they arise. So um, your brain learns to be motivated by sensory cues that predict the delivery of truckloads of fat, sugar, salt, et cetera. And so those are things like the smell of pizza or the sight of chips sitting on the counter. And so, or, or seeing things on a computer screen or on a TV advertisements. So um, I think one really important thing is to control those sensory cues. In other words, you control your food environment. So you don't want to be experiencing, if, if you're trying to control your weight, you don't want to be experiencing food cues throughout the day. You don't want there to be visible, visible food around. You don't want a bowl of M&Ms sitting right next to you. <laughs> yeah, that would be about the worst possible thing because there's no effort barrier and you're experiencing those visual cues. 
Um, so yeah, you want to create, you want to remove the sensory cues and you want to create effort barriers so that you're, you're just, you know, on a very basic level in your brain, this is not even something you have to be consciously aware of throughout the day, but your brain is always doing these cost benefit calculations. And if, if you're not stimulating that dopamine and you're making a harder cost benefit for the brain, then you're just not even going to experience that motivation as much. Well, you've got um, some interesting uh, evidence on the effects of eating bland diets on body weight, where people lose yeah. a lot of weight without even making an effort to lose weight, simply because they're eating a bunch of bland foods. What Tell us about bland liquid diets and potato diets and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other side of it. Um, so the, the sensory cues is one way to control the, the dopamine release. You can also control it by changing the foods that you eat. And, um, yeah, there's evidence that, um, and I review some of this evidence in my book that if you like almost completely eliminate food rewards, so you feed people a super bland diet, liquid diet. So there's like no, almost no sensory cues at all that people with obesity, their spontaneous calorie intake will decline dramatically in most cases. And well, tell us the story about the guy sucking from the tube in the, in the controlled ward. And <laughs> yeah, so they had, they had this guy in a hospitalized setting. Well, it, it's, it was actually a series of patients. Um, but one guy in particular did it for a particularly long time. They had them eating a bland liquid diet out of a machine that every time they pressed a button, they got 7.4 milliliters of this bland liquid into their mouths. And they were told that they could that they should just eat as much as they want. They, they were not told to restrict their intake in any way. Um, and what they saw first in lean volunteers is that their calorie intake just stayed normal. Like they, their calorie intake didn't change at all. It stayed normal and their weight stayed the same. Then when they put people with obesity on this diet, what they saw is their calorie intake dropped like a rock, like down to just a few hundred calories a day. And again, they weren't, making an effort to lose weight or restrict energy intake. That was just, they weren't where, hungry. Yeah. They just weren't hungry. They were just and, living off their fat cells. Exactly. And, and when, you know, they were asked whether they were hungry, the answer was no. So they, they clearly had experienced a dramatic re-regulation of their body fat regulation and, and appetite as a result of this drastic change in diet. Um, and I think that's attributable to the food reward thing. I mean, they, they were eating, they were still eating carbs. They were still eating fat. They were still eating sugar. They were still eating protein. Like the nutrients were all there as in a typical diet. It was just being delivered as this bland liquid with no, you can, you can get a similar effect from just eating nothing but potatoes, right? There's been several documented. Cases yeah. Of this. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. The potato diet. So yeah, there have been, um, it's been done in a scientific context and it's also been done by a lot of individuals, um, just trying to lose weight. And yeah, if you eat nothing but potatoes, um, you can do it. Potatoes have complete protein. It's actually not, the Irish did it. yeah, the Irish ate almost nothing but potatoes for, for a long time. Um, and yeah, it's, it's got enough nutrients in it that you can go for a long time on potatoes exclusively. Um, eventually you'll become deficient in, in a few nutrients, but you can do it for a long time. And, um, 
just to be clear, I'm not recommending that anyone do this. I don't want to, I don't want anyone to, you know, do this and drop dead and then sue me. So this is not something I'm recommending. This is an extreme <laughs> diet. Um, but it can be done and it causes a spontaneous reduction in calorie intake and, and body weight. It's super bland and repetitive. And, uh, you know, you had the Washington potato commissioner, who's the leader of this potato industry group did this, uh, for a few months and lost a bunch of weight. And he was deliberately trying not to lose weight. He was trying to eat enough to maintain his weight and he just couldn't do it. Um, and then there are other people who have done it for up to a, a year under, uh, scientific observation and, uh, we're just fine. So and, and this points to one of, one of the elements of food reward is, is variety. So you're inherently lowering your food reward if you eat the same foods. And I think also if you just eat the same meals at the same time every day, right, that would be less rewarding than switching it up. Am I, am I right about that? That you can kind of like lower your food reward by kind of consistently eating the same thing? I think so. I, I'm not totally sure about that. Um, I, I think so. Um so this has been most clearly demonstrated in animal studies, and there is evidence for it in, in humans as well, but um, it's been most clearly and definitively demonstrated in animal studies. So if you take a rodent, um, these study, this was done by Barbara Rolls, I think. If you take a rodent and you um, put, so it has its normal healthy uh rat pellets in its cage at all times through, throughout all conditions. So if you take that situation and then you add an unlimited amount of cookies to it, like a tasty human food that I think almost all of us would agree is, is fattening, they will eat more and they will gain a certain amount of weight. If you put uh, something like salami in separately, they will also gain a certain amount of weight. However, if you put those, if you put both of those things in together or more foods, if you put more than one food together, they will gain more weight than if you only had one of those individually. And so you have this variety effect that occurs that's on top of just the fattening effects of the, uh, of the individual foods. Yeah. And it's also the way they're combined too. So it's like, if you take ice cream is a super rewarding thing, but if you broke that down and do its individual components and ate them separately, the word would be almost completely gone. Right. So, I mean, ice cream is, you know, sugar and cream and, and whatever else is there. But if you just kind of isolated those and put them all together and ate them separately, you'd almost destroy the rewarding properties of, of the food. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at where fat-free froyo is right now. I mean, nobody buys that anymore. That was a that was the thing in the '90s. I remember growing up, uh, fat-free frozen yogurt. There were parlors that would sell low-fat or fat-free, and I mean, I don't know if you can even find one of those anymore. Um, certainly, fat-free ice cream is not a popular item in the grocery store, and you can't even find ice cream without some kind of sweetener in it that I've seen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, uh, the combination of fat and sugar and ice cream that makes it so seductive. And, and that's true for, for many different foods. If you look at natural foods, like foods that occur in nature, there aren't very many foods that combine carbohydrate and fat. 
there are some like nuts do, um, but there aren't a lot. And even when you see carbohydrate and fat together, you're not going to have the same array of dopamine stimulating nutrients that you would have in something that's been touched like by humans. Like you wouldn't have salt added naturally, for example, whereas we could roast nuts and put salt on them. Um, so yeah, you don't, in, in unprocessed natural foods, you just do not find the same concentrated combinations of dopamine stimulating nutrients that you do in processed human foods. Yeah. So you eat some, so you eat some fruit that's mostly carbs and sugar, and then you eat some nuts and that's, that's a lot of fat and that's, that's, it's a nice meal, but it's not as rewarding as putting those two things together at the same time. Exactly. And if you look at, yeah, if you look at the foods that stimulate cravings and addiction, like eating behavior and surveys, you're not finding people that are, you know, scooping up straight sugar. People aren't just putting sugar into their mouths. They aren't, you know, taking shots of vegetable oil. They're foods that combine fat and carbohydrate together. Those are generally the foods that come up the most often. Right. So I kind of one interesting takeaway. I one interesting question I have about all this is I, I find it fairly uh, convincing that eating low reward food is uh, would be a good way to lose weight or maintain your weight. Um, simple enough in terms of the theory, and I agree with the theory. Not easy to execute because it's hard, it's hard to uh, to eat low rewarding food. Maybe just as hard it is as it is to eat a small amount of rewarding food. So, I mean, what, what would be easier in your mind, disciplining yourself to eat, you know, like a baked potato with no salt and, and uh, no butter, and then just like a, a chicken breast and, and, and broccoli and eating as much as you want or eating a delicious meal prepared by a uh, chef and counting your calories and, and stopping before you're full. You ever, yeah, you ever thought that, about that question? It's yes, I have. I mean, it's it's a great question, and I think what we're really trying to optimize for, in terms of weight loss, is what diet can you go on that is the easiest and most sustainable path to reducing your calorie intake? And I think that's just going to differ for different people. Um, when I first started writing about this food reward stuff and started suggesting to people that you know one thing they could try is to reduce the, the reward value of their diet. Um, I, the feedback that I was getting from, it, it really depended on the person, but a lot of people were saying, yes, this is helping me eat less and lose weight, but it's really hard. It's actually surprisingly hard for me. And that that's why was, I developed my chocolate addiction. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, that was kind of a, a, a an eye-opening moment for me. Like we are so accustomed and habituated to this constant entertainment of the palate that it's like we really miss it when it's gone. Even though our ancestors wouldn't have had the same kind of constant palate entertainment that we have today, because we grew up with that and our brains expect it, it's actually really hard for people to give up. Um, and I didn't, I guess I didn't, maybe I'm naive, but I didn't anticipate how attached people would be to to that. Um, I think maybe because I'm one of the people who is not as attached to it. Um, I mean, I, you know, everybody is to some degree, including me, but, um, I think, you know, I'm just not someone who needs as much of that or feels as motivated toward that as, as some people like I can eat a plain potato or a plain sweet potato. And that is satisfying to me. 
um, as part of the meal. So, um, but I think it depends on the person. So the way, the way I see it is this is a tool in the toolbox. For some people, this is going to be something that really helps them. For other people, this is just not an approach that's going to be effective for them. And I think, you know, it's a tool in the toolbox that people can try. Um, but the other thing I want to say about this is I think it's important to differentiate between highly rewarding foods and satisfying foods. So I think there are foods that are simple, but satisfying. So they are going to leave you feeling like you got what you needed out of the meal. middle zone. You get some reward, but not too much. Yeah. But they're not going to trigger you into that problematic zone where you're really overeating. So, you know, they're on one end of the spectrum on the really problematic end. you have foods like ice cream and, and chocolate and, um, uh, pizza and French fries and chips, things that really cause people habitually to lose control over their eating behavior. And then on the other end, you would have foods that are, you know, people are not going to lose control over their eating behavior around a plain boiled potato or, you know, a celery stick or something like that. Um, but you have foods that are kind of in the middle where, you know, like a steak is pretty satisfying, but if you, um, if you prepare it simply and it's not a super fatty steak, that could be something that is satisfying, but is not going to really drive you to overconsume. Um, you know, same with a plain potato, the way, the way that I will do it, um, in my cooking is I have, I'll, I don't like take a potato and put butter and bacon cheese and whatever on it. I will take a plain potato and then I'll cook something with it. That's saucy, like a stew or, you know, I'll saute some stuff and deglaze, um, with whatever. And then I'll have some kind of liquid in there that will go on the potato. So that's like satisfying and it adds some flavor to the potato, but it's not like over the top type of thing. Um, and the calorie density is, is not higher. So that's kind of the, that's kind of what I would recommend to most people, um, in this domain is to try to strike a balance where you're finding the thing that is satisfying to you, but is not going to trigger uh, loss of control over eating behavior, which is, you know, most people know what foods do that to them. Um, Another thing I like about this very common sense, we kind of know this stuff. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Um, and I, I've been like dismayed the extent to which people have twisted themselves into logical knots on the internet to avoid like these very common sense conclusions about food reward. Well, that, that's a good transition into our next topic, which is kind of what you're up to recently. Uh, I know you're interested in, you know, how well uh, the scientific community and just the whole online information sphere is making sense of nutritional information and translating that into practical action. You've got a project called Red Pen Reviews where you're reviewing books on nutrition. Tell us about that. Yeah, thanks. So um, in the United States and in the world, we are facing a science communication problem. And part of that problem 
is that popular nutrition writing, however well-intentioned it may be, is an exploding volcano of nonsense. <laughs> um, and that's not to say that there's no value in it. There is value. It's just really hard for people to sort the wheat from the chaff. And what that means is that a lot of chaff kind of rises to the top. And it's there's just a terrible incentive structure. So the incentives are if you want to um, get your name out there and get your information out there and potentially make money off books and associated products, um, you are incentivized to make strong and novel claims. So, you know, the archetype is someone comes out with a book that, you know, this one factor that no one else has ever thought about before, like blood type or lectins or something like that is actually the thing that causes obesity and chronic disease. Um, and I'm going to explain it for you. So that there are these bad incentives that causes, um, you know, novel and usually wrong ideas to, to float to the top. And so we, uh, myself and a team of nutrition experts are trying to change the incentive structure for the publishing industry through this organization, Red Pen Reviews, that publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased health and nutrition books, uh, book reviews available anywhere. And the basis for Red Pen Reviews is a unique expert semi-quantitative review method that we developed. So this is a, uh, a structured book review method that assigns numerical scores to scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. And so, um, and it's, there are many advantages to doing it quantitatively in this way. One of them is that it makes it really easy to get super quick information about a book. So if you land on a red pen reviews page, the first thing you see is a picture of the book, the title, and uh, you see percentage bars that tell you the book score in these three different domains, as well as its overall score, which is just the average of those three domains. So literally at a glance, you can get a good sense of how solid that information is. Um, but the other cool thing it does is it allows you to compare between other books. So you could say, hey, what's the best you know, low carb diet book that we have reviewed? Or what's the best vegan diet book that we've reviewed? And you can directly compare those numbers to one another because the reviews were generated through the, an identical review method. So, um, so yeah, it presents a number of different advantages, typical book reviews that you would find like in a newspaper, even, you know, uh, newspapers that are well-respected, like the New York times, they're generally written by non-experts. They generally don't, uh, do reference checks at all, really. Um, so if the review is critical at all, it will usually just be critical on a very superficial level. So, we're really, you know, experts who are actually doing literature searches and following references. Um, and so it's, it's really a completely different, uh, far more rigorous, but I would say also far more accessible type of book review than anything that, that existed um, before it. So um, just to give you a sense of some of the lessons that we've learned over the course of this, because I, I think it's, it's really interesting now that we have uh, a small library of books that we've reviewed, uh, very small library. Um, 
to get a sense of the the patterns that have emerged. Um, generally, books that have you know kind of like what I was describing, they present an, this new idea as a breakthrough. Uh, if they're written by non-experts, those types of books generally don't fare very well um, in terms of scientific accuracy, particularly. And also keep in mind that MDs are often not experts on the things they write books about, although sometimes they are. So, you know, you might have someone, MDs are trained as clinicians primarily. So you could have someone who's great at working with patients, but the book isn't about working with patients. It's about a scientific topic and they're not really an expert on that topic. So you get a lot of books that are in that category. Um, books that are written by experts usually fare better, but are still disappointingly consistent. So we have examples of books that are written by actual, like highly cited researchers. Did you, re did you review the sleep book? No, we haven't reviewed that one. Um, we're, we're only doing nutrition related books for now, although we may expand into other topics, but uh, the China study was written by T Colin Campbell, who actually was a prolific and well-respected researcher from Cornell. And that book did not fare well in scientific accuracy. He just, it's, it's a very, it has tons of references and he cites references accurately, but he just comes to misleading conclusions um, from the data. And so, you know, you can't even, even though there's a better hit rate with books that are written by real experts, it's not a guarantee by any means that it will be a scientifically accurate book. So I think the same bad incentives that apply to everybody apply to a lesser extent, even to true uh, subject specific experts. And so I think that's why we need something like red pen reviews. Um, but another thing I'll say that is kind of interesting, another pattern that's emerged is that almost all the books get pretty good healthfulness scores, despite being scientifically crap. So and that's, and that's a score that's basically, if you follow the advice in the book, will you get healthier or not healthier? Yeah. So it's, it's a composite that is, um, there's three domains, three sub scores that go into it. One is, will it improve the target condition? The other one is, will it improve general health? And the third is, does it meet nutrient needs? And basically, you know, almost any of these diets that they recommend in these diet books are likely to improve general health. Um, there's not like there, there's certain kinds of templates for diets, but there's a pretty limited range in terms of the actual food advice that they're giving. Like either it's low carb biased whole food diet, or it's a, you know, low fat biased whole food diet, or it's just a more general whole food diet. Like those are, kind of the main paths that these books go down in terms of their diet advice. Um, and those, you know, relative to the diets that most people are generally eating, they're probably going to improve your general health. And there's so really similar with the exercise books, you could, there's a, there's a book on kettlebells. There's a book on powerlifting. There's a book on Pilates. If you follow the advice in these books, for the most part, you can expect your functional physical health to improve, but what's wrong with them is the grandiose claims about becoming bulletproof, uh, the explanations for why their stuff works, the exaggerations about how much it's going to work. And then there's the unintended consequence of totally misinforming people, and which does lead to longer-term damage eventually in one form or the other. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I was, I was going to bring this up too. It's like, you know, someone might make the argument, well, why do you care if they're telling this, you know, fanciful story about the science, if it's helping people to adopt healthier diets. And I think, you know, in a very narrow sense, you can make that argument, but I mean, think about the broader impacts on society of scientific illiteracy, like terrible. You can't, if you don't have, if your society does not have a foundation in truth and accurate information, you don't have anything. You can't, you can't do anything. So I think the, the number one most fundamental thing we have to protect is information accuracy. And so, yeah. And so if you don't have that, you don't have anything. And so I do not accept that that is an acceptable way to get someone to adhere to a diet is to tell them a fanciful story about science. I love it. Um, where, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah. So red pen reviews is at redpenreviews.org. Um, uh, my personal website is Stefan Um, you can also, or no, stephanguiane.com or, or, or ORG. You can also go, <laughs> sorry, I haven't been on my website much lately. Um, but you're you on can, Twitter. You, 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 you post quite a bit on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter is the main, main place where I'm, I'm engaged. Um, and my handle is at W H source. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on, Stefan. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks for inviting me, Todd. All righty.